every gift that you got from the jewelry shop and it's amazing how the holidays give me a joy like we were little kids playing christmas morning with toys and we can fall in love take my hand walk through our winter wonderland Our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power and we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Trust in him from Satan's power and might. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Oh. 
with me today is Karen. We would love you guys to stand on up and join us as we worship our God.
God, I pray that we would live in that truth. We would live in that knowledge that we are set free. God, I pray against the things that are holding us back from that freedom. Whether that's things that we're allowing to hold back or shame or fear or whatever that is, God, I pray against it. Let us live in the freedom that you gave when you came to this earth. 
we love you so much and we're so thankful for who you are and for what you've done. And I pray that you would ready our hearts to remember that well, to know that truth well and to live in that truth, God. We love you in your name, amen. Well, here at Cornerstone, we want you not to just come in and go back out, but we want you guys to get to know the people that you're sitting next to. So we're going to have you turn to your neighbor and tell them your favorite Christmas carol. And the correct answer is Oh Holy Night. If you get Oh Holy Night, you get full credit. I'll give you half credit for Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel. The rest of you are wrong. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Hey, my name is Christian. Welcome to Cornerstone. If this is your first time at Cornerstone, I'd love to uh, meet you in our welcome center. I even have a gift for you. So yeah, you totally want to be there. Uh, you can go right through those doors or meet us in the coffee shop. And uh, yeah, if you're, if you're new or newish, and uh, you want to get to know a little bit more about Cornerstone, we actually want to get to know you a little bit better. At this time, I'd ask the ushers to come forward as we enter into a time of giving. If this is one of your first times, please do not feel obligated to participate in this part of the service because this is not for you. This is for the really, really generous people that sit in this room that help take our mission forward to help everybody in the East Bay take their next step with Jesus. So would you pray with me, please? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this awesome church, God, and thank you that we get to um, pause here in our week or start our week, God, with, with song, with worshiping you, but with learning things about you, God, and getting closer to you, Lord. I pray that you bless this service and this offering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we just made it through Thanksgiving, or no, we celebrated Thanksgiving. It's so negative. We, we celebrate with family, right? Woo! We love our families. Hey, we really want this to be family as well. And if you, if you come here and you're like, I don't know, I sit in a row and I go home and I don't really feel like this is family, uh, we, let's, do, let's do something about that. Come to the Next Steps area outside or come to the Welcome Center. We'll try to get you connected, maybe to a group of people. Maybe you want to start serving somewhere and get to know the people that are on that team. Um, uh, this is too big a church to just be sitting in these rows. We want you to get be part of a circle as well. Um, there is a lot of stuff going on at Cornerstone this month and next month. And one of the best ways for you to get to know about that is through our social media channels. <laughs> uh, just connect with like Instagram or Facebook and, uh, and, and follow that, and then we'll post things about what's happening all throughout the month, especially leading up to, uh, to Christmas, uh, Christmas service times, things like that. One of the cool things that's happening just this coming week 
on Sunday, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock is our Advent lighting event. It's great for families. It's great for people just on their own to come. And uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll decorate this building. Uh, we'll get the lights up. We'll sing some songs. We'll get our hearts ready. We'll get the building ready for the Christmas season. We call it the Advent lighting event. Speaking of Advent, you guys are in for a treat. You've really picked a good week to be here because Pastor Billy Reeder is here from the Brentwood campus. We love him, and he's going to get us started with the first sermon in the Advent series. So uh, get ready, sit back, relax, open up your Bible, and uh, welcome to Cornerstone. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you today? Hey, welcome to Cornerstone again. As Christian said, my name is Billy, and I, uh, I, I just have such a great job. I get to serve on staff here. Uh, my campus is in Brentwood, which if you don't know where Brentwood is, it's like uh, 200 miles that way out in the country. Uh, it's gorgeous. We call it the Shire. Uh, it's where all the simple folk live. And uh, I tell you what, it's just, uh, it's cool to be a part of not only the East Bay, but also uh, Cornerstone Fellowship. I trust that you guys had a good Thanksgiving this year. Uh, what a beautiful weekend, wasn't it? Um, I think it was like 75 degrees on Thursday. So the rest of the country is freezing and basically cursing all of us Californians when we're in our shorts and tank tops cooking turkeys. So, you know, haha, everybody else, right? <laughs> Uh, a menu highlight for the Reader Home uh, this, this Thanksgiving, menu highlight was we made a, um, check this out, we made a maple bacon turkey gravy. It is officially on the list of uh, addictive drugs now, okay? Uh, that stuff was good. <laughs> that stuff was really good. So, uh, so, hey, we're really happy that you're here today. As Christian said, we're about to kick off uh, today. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series as we launch into Christmas. We call it the Advent season. And what we're going to do this year is, is we're going to take you to five different locations each week, one, one a week. Uh, where things regarding the incarnation took place in scripture. So there's um, certain homes that we're going to visit. And we're going to drop in and we're going to look at, okay, what was going on? Who was there? What was God doing in the context of the birth of Christ? And look at these important conversations and this activity that the Lord was doing. And then we're going to ask some questions about how this relates to us and how we can incorporate and synthesize some of the, the Christ birth story into our everyday lives. And so that's where we're headed today. Uh, so um, quick question, though, when we begin, the first location I, well, I want to uh, talk to you about is the hometown of Jesus. Now, does anybody know here where that is? Where was the hometown of Jesus? Okay, a couple people said Bethlehem, so that's where Jesus was born, so you are wrong, so don't, don't, don't give the wrong answer. No, I'm teasing, but, but a couple people said Nazareth, and that is correct, so that's where we're going to go today, Nazareth, the village of Nazareth, here's a, a painting of, of the village in the first century, uh, of what, what it perhaps looked like. Um, this was where Jesus grew up. It was the hometown also of Mary. And we think it was the hometown uh, of Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father. Now, here's where Nazareth is located on the map. So if you look at where Israel is in the northern part, you have the Sea of Galilee. And if you go south 
on the Sea of Galilee and then head over about 16 miles towards the Mediterranean. This is where Nazareth is, and this is beautiful country. So if you go there today, it feels a little bit like if you've ever been to like Riverside County or South Orange County away from the ocean uh, out in those hills. It's got that same feel. Uh, the, the water resource management of Israel is, is second to none, and so there's tons of, of crops, and it's gorgeous. It's kind of got that balmy feel to it. And, and it was gorgeous back in the time of Jesus. But the fascinating thing about Nazareth is that almost nobody in the first century knew where this place was. Okay, this was kind of a hidden little village in Israel. In fact, if you look throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament mentions about 300 different cities and towns in Israel. And do you know how many times Nazareth is referenced? Exactly zero. It's just not in there. In fact, if you look at other extra-biblical sources in antiquity, it's also silent on Nazareth. We just don't see it anywhere until, until the New Testament was being written. And so you have this, uh, this interesting dynamic because nothing, it existed, but what that means is nothing ever important happened there. There's nothing significant. There was no big battles there or no famous prophet was from this town. It wasn't distinctive in any way. And scholars think that maybe population-wise, we're looking at 500 people, maybe 1,000 people, possibly pushing it at 1,500, and this was farmers. These are farmers. And so you have this, you just have this off-the-beaten-path little village hidden away. So, so here's the thing. God loves, God loves to work in hidden places, places that have been passed over by everyone else. He prefers those environments. And it kind of gives you a foretaste of what was to come. Now, of, of course, we're talking about sort of visiting people's homes. And as I was studying what life must have been like for Jesus as a kid, you know, kind of growing up in a contextual way, I, I, I was taken back to my hometown. So I grew up in uh, a town, I'm sure you haven't heard of this place, in, in rural Oregon. It's called McMinnville, Oregon. Has anybody heard of McMinnville? What? You have? Are you from there? You're not from there. Okay. I didn't think so. But the fact that anybody's heard of this place is actually kind of a shock. Uh, so McMinnville is... Uh, go, <laughs> go Grizzlies! Oh, my goodness. All right, okay, so I, I graduated from McMinnville High School, class of 91, home of the Grizzlies. Uh, I was born in McMinnville Hospital, and when I was a kid, this place was backwater. I mean, it was like maybe 16,000 people. Nobody really heard of this. It was a, a far distant suburb of Portland. And, you know, like Nazareth, nothing ever happened in McMinnville. Nothing took place there. It was like not on the map at all. That is until... 1983, I was 10 years old, and an army of actors and actresses and a huge film crew from Hollywood descended upon McMinnville, Oregon to film, to shoot the classic made-for-TV movie, once-in-a-generation seminal classic called The Quarterback Princess. Have you heard of this film? <laughs> Look at this. Starring none other than megastar young Helen Hunt. This is Helen Hunt's like, this was her thing. Now, you know, she's 20 years old. She's got, what is she, an Academy Award winner? And she's been in all kinds of stuff. But man, this was 
early days, Helen Hunt, there's all these actors and actresses, and man, I tell you what, this was a huge deal in Mac, okay? This was a big deal. Everybody wanted to be in this movie, be an extra. They used our high school football team to shoot all the, 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 the scenes and stuff, the football scenes. So, so the movie is about this, this, this high school girl who moves to McMinnville from Canada, and she becomes our high school starting quarterback and our homecoming princess. Get it? Quarterback princess, huh? Yeah, clever, super like deep, okay? And I was thinking rather than describe with words my hometown, why don't I just show you a short clip from this fabulous movie? Enjoy McMinnville, everybody. Check this out. Awesome. I mean, that was my high school there. That was, uh, they pulled into that gas station. I've used that restroom. Oh my goodness. It's just like, oh. uh, I mean, uh, how about the mom? Oh, I hope there's a movie theater. That's what I love. Go to the movies. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah, we got a movie theater too. So yeah, McMinnville, Oregon. You know that Izzy's Pizza? That Izzy's Pizza, that's where we had, that's, I, I, I smashed so much pizza in that place. I tell you what, they hated us high school boys coming in. You know, we are basically black holes of calories. And then they had this all-you-can-eat deal, right? And they never made money on us, but we thought it was rad, man. We thought it was totally rad. So, so this, was, uh, this was my childhood. And, I, you know, I, I look back and think, uh, I wasn't really a Christian, as I've told you before. But, man, God had his hand on my life. His sovereign hand was shaping things, and I look back and I thank God for uh, all those years on the farm in this wonderful little town, and I'm so grateful for that. And just like McMinnville wouldn't stay hidden forever, neither did Nazareth, and we know this, this earth-shaking, shattering event happened uh, that would change the course of history as we know it. So that's what we're going to study today. We're going to look at two things that happened at Nazareth. First, we're going to look at Mary and Joseph. They were in Nazareth, and God shows up in their life and changes things radically for them. And then we're going to fast forward things in the timeline of Nazareth, and we're going to pick it up and look at when Jesus as an adult returns to his hometown and then what happened there. So, okay, let's dive into this first one. If you have a Bible, go to Luke 1, chapter Chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to just read a very familiar passage. Here's what it says. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. He sent the angel to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and Jesus will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born, the angel says, will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She's part of this story. And she, Elizabeth, who was said to be unable to conceive, is now in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This is such a, was such a beautiful scene, such a beautiful story, such a powerful story. And there's a couple things in here I want to point out. First, if you come from a Catholic background or perhaps a Greek Orthodox background in your spiritual journey, you'll know that this passage refers to what we call the Annunciation. So this is kind of the term in the, in the Christian calendar uh, that we, we visit this, this idea. And what this means is simply the angel announces to Mary who Jesus is, why he's going to be born, and then how that's going to happen. Now, when the angel shows up to, to Mary in Nazareth this day, I love this conversation. I want to just uh, dig in here just a little bit. There's a couple things that we can learn from. And no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, maybe you're new to Cornerstone, new to, new to Christianity, or coming back after a while, or, or perhaps you've been walking, and man, this is, this is familiar territory for you. There are some things that God shows us here through Mary's responses that we can apply to our lives. I want to point this out. What's the first thing that Mary does? She shows us in her conversation here what it means to have a thoughtful faith. And, and, and I'm going to show you what, what I mean by this. So, so uh, look back down at verse 29, and here's what it says. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, at, at, at Gabriel's words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And I want to key in on this word wondered for just a moment. Let's blow this up. So wondered, this is a really interesting word, by the way, because translators that go from the original Greek into English, they can't quite find an English equivalent, which happens a lot in language translation. It's the case here. So if you dig back now into the original Greek word, it's kind of a, it's kind of a big word. Uh, here it is. It's transliterated now into English. And what this word says, it's, it's pronounced dialogizomai. So dialogizomai. Uh, and what this is, is a compound Greek word. So if you, if you break this down, the, the, this right here, can I touch the screen? Now my fingerprints are on it, dang it. Okay, here we, all right, here it is. Dia, that's a Greek prefix that means, what does it mean? It means through. Okay, it means through. And then you have the rest of the word. You almost can see the word logic in here. Okay, so what this literally means, if you put these together, is through logic. To think through something carefully. To think through something rationally, methodically. My favorite nerd theological dictionary says, dialogizomai means to think or reason carefully, especially about the implications of something. So this is such a surprising response, given that Mary is probably around 15 years old, plus or minus a couple years. So we have this teenager who is being visited by this angel, this powerful angelic being, and her response is the opposite of emotion. She is a thinker. She is a rational person. 
Mary, in this pressurized moment, she uses her head. And she applies the power of her brain to the power of her faith. She merges faith and thought, a thoughtful faith. Again, this is very unexpected. Now, for those of you who are parents of teenagers, you know what I mean by this. Because let me ask you, are teenagers known to be thoughtful, rational people? Hmm, not really, huh? We actually have some science to this. Psychologists have studied the brain, the teenage brain. Wow, what a job. (laughs) And what they tell us is that the teenage brain development has not quite yet kind of synthesized and the synapses haven't grown all the way so that there is like more of an emotional response to things versus a rational response. And later in adulthood, that happens for for some of us. (laughs) Um, But it's supposed to happen. And so a lot of times teenagers react not how you would think. They, like they think, okay, this is a good idea, but it mostly feels like a good idea, but it's not. Like, like there was, um, well, I have a couple of examples for this. Uh, there's a kid who took a selfie, I guess. He was out in the woods with a squirrel. And then what happened right after is the squirrel attacks him, okay? And so, so that's, that's, is that a good idea? That's not a good idea. Is that a good idea? Is that a good idea? Is that a good idea? No, that's not a good idea. Okay, or these teens who they're taking selfies, but their faces are wrapped in clear tape, and then they publish them on their social media accounts. And then they go to try to get a job where you work. And, and, and how's that working out? How about this kid? He had his earbuds. Oh, okay, uh, never mind. We'll go to the next one. This kid, how about this kid? He got a tattoo of his McDonald's receipt on his right arm, okay? All right, that's not a good idea. Is that a good idea? Is that a good idea? Are you gonna hire this kid? Are you gonna look at his social media when he applies for a job, yeah? Okay, so these are not good ideas, in case you're wondering, uh, if you can't tell. So, teenagers, not necessarily known for rational thought. But Mary, Mary's so different, isn't she? She's brilliant. She's brilliant. She responds in such a poised, godly way. She's way beyond her years. She's like, wait a second, there's this angel. Wait, 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 hang on a minute, let me think about this. What's going on here, are you real? Is this real? Is this really happening? I need to rationally think through this a little bit. And and by the way, if you're going to make up the fable of Christianity, if you're going to kind of, you know, manufacture this fiction, you're never going to put this in here. Because if you're going to make this up, you're going to make the hero of the story just immediately respond with no reservations and no questions whatsoever. Like, yes, Lord, yes, of course, whatever you say, right? That's kind of how you're going to make this, frame this up. But Luke records Mary's honest response And that is Mary is thinking about the implications immediately of seeing the angel and then what the angel is telling her. And then her response as she's thinking is to ask some clarifying questions. Hey, Lord, uh, how, how, how can this be? I haven't known a man yet. This is a lot to take in. And this is key because, this is so key. Because let's, let's be honest, culturally, I'm talking more from secular culture now, looking into Christianity. Folks who are on the secular side of the social spectrum, they, they sort of look at us and, they're, and, and we believe this stuff, right? We actually believe this is real history. We believe in the, mir- the, the miracle power of God, the virgin birth. And so they, these they folks point their fingers at us and they say, you, you guys, you Christians, you're not thinkers. You checked your brain at the door when you walked into church. 
In order to believe these fables, these stories, you have to actually become an intellectual oaf, a simpleton, not like us secular people where we use logic and reason and we, um, we're scientific, we're scientific, we're thoughtful. And so there's this accusation culturally against the gospel that you can feel it's this intellectual resistance and this intellectual conden, conden, condescension. And man, I, I, have you felt this? Have you felt this? Yeah, I know some of us have. Especially living here in the Bay Area, this high-tech place, highly educated. But this is not, listen, this is not an accurate characterization. This is a mischaracterization because Mary shows us and she models for us that we, we are willing to think. We're thinkers. We reason through the data, don't we? In fact, you could, you could make a case that we're a little bit even more careful, more furious thinkers because there is this miraculous data, these claims, and what Christians do is we say, let, let me think about this and let me think about the implications and what a lot of secular people do is they don't consider it because it doesn't fit their grid of plausibility. Their plausibility structures actually limit the data. Christians are like, wait a second, what if this really did happen? My plausibility structure is gonna make some room for the miraculous power of God, and, and what we do is we ask this very important question. Well, if this really happened, if this is really true, then what are the implications in my life as a result of this historical event? And when you start doing that and you start thinking through rationally the ramifications of these claims of Christianity in the Gospels and certainly the virgin birth story, that's when things get really interesting to have a thoughtful faith. So let me ask you this Christmas, are you thinking carefully about Jesus? When was the last time you really devoted some serious thought and some intellectual processing about the, the, the claims, the, the, the truth claims of the miraculous birth of Jesus? And if you're, if you're asking those questions, if you're, you're doing, in a sense, what Mary is showing us to do, that's good. Keep wondering. Keep wondering. Because this is all part of what it means to follow Christ. Okay, so that's the first thing Mary shows us. Isn't that good? How is that? Let me just take a little status check. How are we doing out here? We doing okay? We doing okay? Okay, good. Status check. All right. Can I? Okay. Just talk amongst yourself. Talk, menu highlights. Menu highlights. <laughs> I want to look at the second thing Mary does. Let's go right to the end of the conversation. She shows, she shows us what complete surrender looks like. At the very end, she says this, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. This is a beautiful statement. This is stunning. This is absolutely stunning. Because first of all, she reacts, I think, like a lot of us would react, right? She, she's, she's a little bit like, okay, what's going on? And then as God, through the angel, walks her through things, at the end of it, she says, okay, God, I give you control of my life. Your will be done. I'm no longer the Lord of my life. I'm handing my life over to you. I'm your servant. This was a major step, a major step. At some point, she had to trust who God said he was, and she had to trust who God said or what God said he would do. So she surrenders. 
You know how hard that is to do that? It's very hard to do that. You know, Joseph actually, let's look at Joseph for just a second. Joseph had to do the same thing. Mary's fiance. It, it was a little bit different for him from the men's, man's perspective. His surrender would mean that he had to take on and absorb some pretty serious social shaming and pressure from marrying a girl who had gotten pregnant before their, their allotted betrothal time had ended, was completed. Now, it's really not on the same scale as Mary and the, and the, uh, and the social shame and pressure that she endured, but Joseph had his share in it. That's because engagement was different in Jewish culture than it is for, for us today. And some of you know this, but real quickly in review, the engagement time was basically a waiting period so that the husband could build a home and prepare a place for his wife. This is, again, first century Jewish culture. So Joseph and Mary, at this point in the story, they would have already had a ceremony. They would have exchanged marriage vows already. The, the, the dowry and the gifts between the families would have already taken place. I mean, there's all this, this kind of contracts actually may have even been signed, we think, in some cases. All the details of this union would have been worked out. And the only thing that was sort of different in this period than maybe for us is that, that they lived apart and then the parents of the two families would sort of supervise heavily the visits and the interactions between the kids. And it was partly to get the house ready, but it was also partly to get them used to the shock of slamming together two, you know, lives, independent lives together in this thing called marriage. So it was kind of easing folks into that. There's a lot of wisdom to that, I think, if you sort of take back, take a step back and look at it. But that was the betrothal time. And in the betrothal time, Joseph would have been crushed, right? So all this had taken place. And he was going to quietly and respectfully end the relationship. The, the Gospel of Matthew says that he was about to divorce Mary. And then the angel visits Joseph. He visits Joseph too. And so Joseph had to then completely surrender to God's plan for his life, his dreams, his aspirations. And it seems that in order for Jesus to come into the world... There was a lot of surrendering that needed to happen. Okay, what about you and me? When it comes to complete surrender, at some point, every single one of us has to do the same thing that Mary and Joseph have modeled for us here. That is to say to Jesus, my life is yours. I give you my future. I give you my aspirations. I give you control. Have you done this? If you haven't done this, it's really, let me just be straight up honest with you. It's scary to do this. I said it before, let me say it again. It's scary. You know why it's scary? It's because when you really do this, it's for real. This isn't religion. This isn't just signing up for some sort of moral code and you know, some social games that religion kind of surrounds itself around. It means something. It's way beyond just rules and regulations to follow because we're talking about 100% lordship of Jesus kind of trust and commitment. That's what this comes down to. That's what the Christmas story models for us. And that is to say to Jesus, okay, 
You are Lord, which means I'm not. And so I am going to surrender. I'm going to submit my life. And that means the plans that I have are absolutely secondary to what you have for me, Jesus. And so, Lord, I am saying to you, yes, I'm going to be imperfect in this, in the execution, but I'm saying my heart is yours. Take my life. I'm going to bow my knee. I'm going to give you everything that I am from this day forward, and you run it, Lord. You're worthy of it. You're more, you're more wise. You're more all-knowing. And so, therefore, God, I, I give you, you are now the CEO of this thing called Billy. That's what I'm talking about. Have you done that? Obviously, fill in your name. So this Christmas, let's, let's do some, some heart check. Let's do a status check. Ask this question. Have I completely surrendered my life to God? I want you to consider this. Spend some time with the Lord. Secondly, maybe you have done this, but now you're into this thing and you realize, okay, I thought I did, but there's some things I've been holding back, right? Some areas where maybe the Lord isn't totally, Jesus is king in this and this area, but Jesus isn't king over here. See what God brings up. And when you do this, when you go through this process, remember this very important reality is that Jesus first gave himself to you and me 100%. He did this first. And by the way, there's no other God like this. And then he just simply asks us to do the same in return. He makes the first move, and he asks us to do the same. All right. That's what Mary teaches us here. That's what Joseph teaches us here. Like I said at the beginning, let's fast forward just for a few minutes and look at Nazareth about 30 years later. The village itself hadn't changed too much, I'm sure. Life was pretty slow then. But we pick up in Luke chapter 4, if you want to turn forward in your Bibles, in verse 16, we pick up things as Jesus' public ministry is now in full swing. So Jesus is around 30 years old, maybe plus, or, you know, maybe 30, 31, 32 in this. He's began his public ministry. He's traveling around the Galilee and ministering the kingdom, and he's healing, and he's preaching uh, why he's come and who he is. And so word has gotten back to his hometown that Jesus is coming, and he's going to guest teach. And so here we read in verse 16 of chapter 4, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood to read, and then the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So Jesus is in his home church. And what that means is most of the people there that day that were at church on Saturday on the uh, at the synagogue, they would have known Jesus. They would have, you know, maybe some of them were family. Uh, certainly they were neighbors. Now, maybe he didn't know everyone. Maybe things had changed since he had moved over to Capernaum. But he came back, and man, this was, this was home turf. This was home field advantage. And they knew him, and he knew them. I, I, real quick, I got to go to this place. This, this is, you have to go on one of our Israel trips if you can. This is so amazing. So, so there is, there is the, the largest church in the Middle East is in Nazareth. It's a huge Catholic church. But right behind the church is this place, is the actual synagogue. And no one, hardly anybody knows about it. Most people are going to the, and then you just go behind this church, and because we know a guy, <laughs> right, we get to go. 
And it's exhilarating. In fact, I got a couple pictures like, look at this. You, you, you kind of walk into it. It doesn't even look like anything. It looks like you're in an alleyway. It's obscure. Oh, it's perfect. And then you go in, and here's what the inside of it is. We have some people in this room that were in, on this trip. And it's actually really interesting. But none of what you're seeing there is original to the first century. This was a small church that was built, I think, in the second and third century. But what is original to the first century, to this story, what's original is the stone floor. The stone floor of this synagogue is straight the same. Now, those are not my feet, okay? Those are not my feet. Those are Pastor Paul Lux's feet. My feet are not quite as ugly as that, okay? Some other time I'll show you, but not now, not now, not now, not now, okay? Distracting. But uh, look, at the, look at the tiles. Don't look at Paul's feet. Look at the tiles. That's original. And what that means is Jesus would have, he would have, that's where he would have played as a kid when his parents took him to church. And you're there, and, and you're just like, the Bible just comes alive. And these are the same stone tiles that Jesus would have walked over as he took the podium, so to speak, that day when he would, read, when it, when he would have read this scripture from Isaiah. And the scripture that was pre-selected for Jesus just so happened to be, if you keep reading, it happened to be about what? About the Messiah. And so Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah, and Jesus, the Messiah, is now getting up to read about himself in his home church. It's a trip, isn't it? And so he reads this pre-selected text, and then he preaches the shortest sermon that's ever been preached in the history of all sermons. I know what some of you are thinking. Would you be more like Jesus, please, in this area, Billy? Yes, yes, yes. That's cheap humor, okay? I'm getting there. He preaches this one sentence. He reads the Messiah, the Messianic vision, and then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. You know what happens? It takes a few minutes for the people to get what he's saying. And as soon as it clicks, they go crazy. Bad crazy. You've come to heal the blind. You've come to release the captives. You've come to bring in the Jubilee. Are you serious? You fixed my roof two years ago. You're Mary's son. How could you say such blasphemy, Jesus? You're not the Messiah. And pretty soon, a mob forms. And they are bent. They are, they, they are beside themselves with anger and this visceral, snarling reaction. And they yank Jesus out of the synagogue. And they pull him out of the city. And then they bring him to the edge of this very steep 150-foot rock cliff that you can go there today and see. And they're about ready to do what? They're about ready to throw him over the edge and kill him. Just for a second, remember, these, these are the people that he grew up with. These are the people that loved him, that were his neighbors. He knows these people, and now they want to kill him. They're 100% wholly rejecting him. Why? Because he said, I'm the Messiah. And right about as they're ready to just toss him over the side, something happens. We don't know. But Jesus says, it's not my time. We're not sure what he said. Effectively, he says, it's not my time. And this whole thing stops, and he slips through the crowd. And he escapes. Here's what I want to point out. 
Let's come back to us for just a second. This is so relevant. You know, the holidays, which we are fully now in, for a lot of people, this is a terrible time of year. It's a terrible time of year. It's the worst time of year. It happens for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because holiday is supposed to be about family and about blessing and about, you know, relationship. And then for some of us, though, it's the opposite. Family is pain. Family is brokenness. Family is relational fracturing and fighting and games and, and just terrible stuff. And so you just, it's, 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 it sticks. And I get why, okay, let's be honest. There's a lot of reasons why that things go south in family. And, and undoubtedly, maybe if that's you, you may be the cause of it. You might. You might be the one. Or you might not. You might not. You may be totally like just because just you showed up and the crazies all around you. Right? Right? Either way, however it got there, it's, it's, it hurts. It hurts like almost unlike any other hurt. Is that true? Have you ever had this? When home becomes a place that you don't want to be, or home becomes a place where you can't be, it hurts. Why do I mention this? It's very simple. Jesus gets it. Jesus was rejected by his home. He couldn't go back there. He couldn't, he couldn't go back there. He wasn't, it wasn't safe. They tried to, I mean, this was extreme. They wanted to murder him. Jesus understands what it's like when home is a place that is unsafe. And that becomes a unique resource for us to draw on when we consider all the other religious options, God and goddess claims that are out there. There's only one God, Jesus Christ, who has been through the sum total whole human experience personally. He's personally known what it means to be rejected by family, by neighbors, by friends. He didn't do anything wrong. He's just revealing who he is. And then he's backing it up with miracles and preaching and power par excellence. He was unacceptable in his hometown. Jesus gets it. And this is an important truth that we need to remember. That Jesus walked through what it means to be a human being. And he can walk through and help us when we ourselves undergo painful suffering experience such as the pain of family. Now here's what we know is that Jesus shares this experience with us and shared experiences produce bonding. Now if you're taking notes, I want you to, I want you to, to, to think about this this week. Shared experiences produce bonding. Have you known this to be true with your friends? Like let's say you go through something very difficult, maybe a, a project at work or or through with your spouse, you've gone through a death in the family, some grieving, and it's just a difficult time. Or maybe um, you have a really a horrible boss at work and your coworkers are walking through, okay, the minefield. And what that does, that experience, that pain and that suffering, when you go through it with somebody, it produces, we know this, it produces a bond. It produces a, a cooperation. It produces this dynamic sort of trust between those people. And that can never be replicated in any other situation. It produces shared bonding, shared experiences produce bonding. 
And so this becomes then a key reason why Jesus had to incarnate himself into humanity because he knows, he knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows a lot of stuff about what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to be poor and to struggle with a lack of money. Jesus knows what it's like to be a refugee. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows betrayal. Jesus knows what a hard day's work feels like on your body and in your hands. He knows laughter. He knows friendship. He also knows betrayal and what it's like to be beaten. And he knows loneliness and stabbed. And, 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 and I mean, the worst, most horrible things in this life, we have a God who relates to us point for point. In the best things of life and in the worst things of life. And that bonds us with Jesus. It bonds us with him. Do you feel this bonding to him? Maybe I'm expressing this thing that you felt between you and Christ, and you're saying, ah, that's what it is. Why do I love Christ so much just personally? Oh, my goodness. I, sometimes I, I, I'm nothing special, okay? He first loved me. This isn't about me telling you how great I am. But, man, I love Jesus so much. He is number one in my life and heart. Is the execution there all the way? Absolutely not. But I love him. And as I'm discovering this Christmas story afresh this year, I'm realizing it's because, man, you went through some of the same stuff I did. And, man, that just, oh, I just, it, it helps connect me to Christ, not on a head level, but at a heart level, on a whole self level. Are you with me? Do you understand this? Isn't this a beautiful thing? One more thing, real quick. Ah, I'm, I'm, I'm long. I'm going over. I just ran out 13 seconds ago. <laughs> Let me just say this. What if home is great? Okay. Oh, yeah. I, that, I have compassion for those. But, man, my house is great. Family is awesome, man. There's unity and there's blessing and support and love. And, yeah, no, you know, my family's crazy and there's, you know, it's not perfect. But, boy, generally, it's, it's a place where I want to be. And, and that's, that's, that's wonderful. But what can we learn from this? It's very simple. When family's good, that's a gift. That's a gift from God. We gotta remember that. It's a gift. Somebody says, well, you know, I've made some sacrifices and I've, I've tried to, you know, really pour into my family, give them priority. I've made some choices to, to put them, you know, in the right place in my life. And so, you know, I'm just, that's, I'm, I, I had something to do with it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking that away from you. However, there's a lot of people who've done the same thing, and their families are not so, it's not so fun. And so what I'm saying is this, is when the gospel comes into your life, and you really understand that the love that Jesus has for you, you didn't earn that love, you didn't deserve that love, and in fact, the salvation that God has given us is based strictly upon grace, and not because I've earned it in good works. That same, that same perspective we apply to the blessings of life, including the blessings at home. And so we go, oh, God, God, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the gift of my family. And Nazareth teaches us that as well. I thank God. I thank God if your family is a place of life and a safe place. Oh, that is the best. What if you're not there yet? I'm praying that God will do some miracle power, some miraculous works in your family and repair that brokenness because he can do it. Last thought. Nazareth, this little out-of-the-way place, forgotten, passed over, nobody knows about it. 
Perhaps you're hearing my voice and you're like, yeah, well, that's me. I'm Nazareth. Man, nobody notices me. God has forgotten about me. He has to have forgotten about me and overlooked me. Man, no one cares. I, 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 I'm obscure. I'm hidden. And, uh, and maybe that's your life. Listen, you're exactly the kind of person God wants to use. He loves humble places. He loves humble people. He loves to start with nothing. And the best thing you can do is to keep coming back to church this Christmas season and keep learning about who Jesus is and how once he makes your heart his home, everything changes. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for these words, for, for Mary, for seeing Mary through this fresh perspective and and what she brings to us, and how she's beckoning us to a more thoughtful faith, <clears throat> a more reasoned faith. And so I'm praying, Lord, that Joseph as well, this bravery, his courage, his willing to absorb punches, Lord, all of these attributes of your disciples, we're asking that those same things would be in our lives as well. I'm also praying for those who, whose homes this Christmas season, they don't wanna be there. They don't wanna be there. People don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go back because there's pain. I'm asking you to heal that. Somehow, God, in Jesus' name, heal that. Lord, at the end of the day, we, we, we desire complete surrender, and so we simply, as we close our, our sermon time out, Lord, we just pray the same thing that Mary said, but we pray it, and we say, Jesus, we are your servants, and may your word to us be fulfilled. And we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Well, we would love you guys to stand up and join us for one more song as we meditate on these words that God has spoken to us through Billy.
Well, we have loved getting to worship and know our God better with you guys this weekend. If you need prayer, we have people who are up here and they wanna pray for you. They wanna walk through whatever you're going through together. If this is your first time, or maybe you haven't really gotten connected yet, we would love to meet you in our Welcome Center right out those backside doors. Nice little spotlight there to help you know where to go. For the rest of you guys, we hope you have a great week and we hope to see you again next weekend. I